So let's open our Bibles, open your sermon outline. We are in Mark chapter 6. We begin by reading the first 13 verses in Mark 6. He, Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled, because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Thank you for God's word. Let's pray. Almighty, eternal, and merciful God, your word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our paths. Open and illuminate our minds, that we may purely and perfectly understand your word, and that our lives may be conformed to what we've understood in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Several years ago, I returned to Fort Lauderdale, where I had spent some time during college and after college. My parents had moved down there when I was in college in Texas. My brother, Josh, invited me to uh, go to a service, a new church that had been planted and was, he was really impressed. They were doing a great job reaching out to the city and preaching the gospel. So I went and the pastor of the church there did a fantastic job. I was impressed by the worship and the people and everything, but I couldn't get over one thing. The pastor's name was Brad and he had been in the high school youth group when I was in college at my dad's church. So here I am 20 years later, but I can't get over the fact that Brad, who in my mind is still a freshman in high school, like this quiet kid, has planted this church and is just this fantastic preacher and this charismatic personality. I just remember leaning over to my brother and saying, this is, 
how's he doing all this? He's only 15. And of course, he was in his mid-30s and, and had a really wonderful ministry going. I have similar reactions when I visit friends from college. My best friend, Doug, owns a marketing company in downtown Waco. And he employs like 20 people and has these huge uh, contracts with companies all over central Texas. And I shouldn't be surprised, Doug is a very intelligent, uh, accomplished man with great leadership skills. But it's just hard for me not to think back to when we were yelling at the refs at basketball games or talking about girls or drinking Dr. Pepper and just all the crazy stuff we did in college. And now he's this VIP businessman. It's hard for me to see. Of course, I'm also on the receiving end of this phenomenon, as you might be as well, as my parents' friends say things like, I remember you when you were this tall, and now you've got four kids and one in college. This is the dynamic that Jesus encounters when he brings his disciples to his hometown. His hometown, of course, is Nazareth, not Bethlehem that we just talked through in the Christmas story. They were just there very temporarily. But Jesus grew up in Nazareth. And the people in his hometown knew him when he was a kid. They knew him when he was doing carpentry work in his, as a young man. They know his family, his parents, his siblings. They, they probably still live there. They think there's nothing special about that family. There's no mystical, spiritual anointing, just an average, maybe below average, Jewish family in this small town. How can Jesus be teaching and preaching and doing miraculous spiritual things? Their reaction to Jesus is proof that a prophet is without honor in his hometown. So the first Six verses. Let's read those again. A prophet without honor in his hometown. He, Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? Where is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about among the villages teaching. There's an old saying, you can't go home. Again, usually what it means is that things change, and what you remember about your family, your home, your town, will only disappoint you, right? Well, Jesus goes home, and he brings his disciples. And actually, things haven't changed a whole lot. But he still doesn't have a great time. As Jesus comes to the synagogue, we know that any adult Jewish male was allowed to uh, talk, to teach. And so Jesus takes this opportunity and steps up and begins teaching away. Mark doesn't record what he teaches. But as with everything that came out of Jesus' mouth, 
It was shockingly wise and spiritually deep. How fascinating is it that the hometown folks go from being astonished by his teaching, right? Verse 2, they heard him, were astonished. To then, at the end of verse 3, being offended. They took offense at him. What changed? Well, they started grumbling. They started talking among themselves or thinking, uh, we know this guy. We know his family. Now, he was teaching and leading a group of disciples like a rabbi of the day would have. And that was offensive, right? Carpenters, manual laborers, don't get to act like spiritual experts, in their opinion. I'm sure news had traveled that he's cast out demons recently and that he's healed uh, an important person, Jairus' daughter. And so there's probably this buzz about him. But I'm sure they're saying there's no way this guy that grew up here never did anything wrong. There's no way that he could be doing these amazing things. In the first chapter of John, if you remember one of the disciples, Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And I think the people of Nazareth owned this and believed it as much as any of the outsiders. R.C. Sproul and, and some of the other commentaries I read point out part of why the people would have been offended. And the most likely reason that the people of Nazareth called Jesus the son of Mary. Did you catch that? It's a little different. Usually you would refer to a Jewish man by Jesus bar Joseph. Jesus, son of Joseph. But they say, son of Mary. Why? Even if Joseph is dead at this point, which seems likely, he'd still be called that. Well, it's most likely that people remember the circumstances of Jesus' birth. They still believed that Jesus was illegitimate, having been conceived out of wedlock. It's a way to mock him. They say, we know that guy. We know that, that family. We remember the scandal that they tried to say was this virgin birth. No way God is working through him now. It's interesting that this is most likely the second time that this has happened. Um, and the first time went even worse than it does here. The opposition was even more intense. If you remember, if you, Luke 4 records that Jesus, when he came back to Nazareth, went into the synagogue, very similar to this account. And it records what he read, Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus kind of sits back and says, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And the people look at him, like, no, you are Joseph's son, they say in the gospel of Luke. And, and Jesus knows what they're saying. And he, he replies, essentially, just like Elijah couldn't perform miracles in, in his hometown, I know you're not going to listen to me. A prophet is without honor in his hometown. 
And that infuriates them. The whole thing infuriates them. That's the, the account where they drive, they take him and they try to take him to a cliff to throw him off. But he slips out and leaves. Now, it's possible that these are the same incidents since Luke doesn't record this one that Mark does and Mark doesn't record that. But uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, Luke places it before Jesus has called any of disciples. So you would have to say that Luke really put that out of order. Um, and Mark doesn't say anything here about the crowd getting violent and wanting to kill Jesus. So it's most likely that this is the second time this has happened. And it's kind of surprising, right, that, it, that he's allowed back and he's allowed to then teach again. I think that's really fascinating. And the same sort of arc, the same message, the same thing happens. The people see him and say, no way. We know him. We know his family. He can't be this teacher, this spiritual leader. So the story ends with Jesus being unable to do much in the way of mighty work, except for a few healings. It's not because Jesus has lost his touch. The idea is that God is, uh, does not extend his healing and supernatural works into areas that reject Jesus. And it says that Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. Did you catch that? Michael Card remarks that only two things ever amaze Jesus, faith or the lack thereof. Now, if I was preaching in some of the churches that I visited or writing some of the Christian books that I've read, um, I would kind of take us in this direction. Uh, there's churches and, and Christian books that want you to live up to your full potential. And so the point of the sermon at this point would be something like this. Be like Jesus and don't let anyone keep you down, right? Your past doesn't have to define you. Don't let people's low expectations or limitations keep you from achieving your dreams. You tell them who you are. You keep fighting for your God-given mission. People always tell you what you can't do. God says that you can. Have you heard of applications like that? It's, it's all fine and good. There's some real truth there. If, you, if that's some of the application you take, that's fine. Nothing necessarily heretical there but I think we can go a lot deeper I don't think that's the point of the passage I don't want to take it in that direction it feels like uh, we're taking it from the really Jesus-centered passage to being about what I want in life certainly we should apply things but that feels like uh, how can I get what I want out of life with a little spiritual veneer to baptize it. To me, this is a great reminder that Jesus's divinity was veiled. Do you know that concept that when he was on earth, people didn't recognize anything special about him. He didn't walk around glowing or with a halo. You couldn't tell that he was God. This was prophesied in Isaiah 53 too. It said, he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. 
So people who saw Jesus in the flesh didn't have any idea that it was God. It's only when he teaches very deep truth or does something like heal a leper or calm the storm and God opens people's eyes that they realize this is a man sent from God. This is a man who is God's messenger. He has amazing spiritual powers. But a lot of people, even when they saw it with their own two eyes, couldn't understand, couldn't agree. Their unbelief, their spiritual blindness and prejudice was too strong. So here in Nazareth, even after Jesus taught and healed some people, the things that usually established Jesus' divine credentials, they couldn't believe. Jesus says even his relatives, his own household, right? People today, maybe some of you listening, maybe like the citizens of Nazareth, in the sense that you're willing to grant that there was a historical person named Jesus, who lived in Israel for 30 years, created a stir, gathered some followers, but was eventually silenced, put to death by Rome. But that's as far as you can go. You cannot believe that Jesus was also God, that God took on human form, particularly in such an obscure time and manner. But if that's all you're willing to grant Jesus, that he was a historical person, then you might as well agree with his family back in chapter 3 of Mark. He's out of his mind, right? Because Jesus was constantly claiming to be God, and if he wasn't, he was a fraud. Either you take the whole account of the Gospels of Jesus being that the God-man who had spiritual authority over all things, or you reject the whole thing as lies and fabrications created by him and his disciples. There's no middle ground. If you're offended by that idea, you're certainly not the first. Right? The Greek word that Mark uses at the end of verse 3 when he says that the people were offended by Jesus is scandalizo, a scandal to be scandalized. Either you believe or you're offended and scandalized. Those are the appropriate responses. Mark's narrative now turns from a time when Jesus got very little accomplished spiritually to a time when spiritual things were greatly multiplied. Jesus has been training his disciples by modeling everything for them. Right? The teachings, the healings. But he doesn't intend for them to just be his assistants forever. He wants them to start doing these things on their own. He's taking the training wheels off in a sense. Let's see how they do without me there. And so the next five verses, verses 7 through 11, are the instructions for this first mission. And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two. And gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, 
Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. I hope that nobody reads this and and thinks that this is the one and only spiritual way to send people out for missions work, right? Take this very literally that there's some deep Holy Spirit magic sending out missionaries uh, even today with no money and no food and one change of clothes, two by two. Only if you follow that prescription will they be able to cast out demons and heal the sick. No, this is Jesus' just specific directions to his 12 apostles that aren't really new to them. This is, they've been following Jesus around. They've been staying with, in different homes, being provided for along the way. But this is Jesus' instructions and a great reminder that they had to rely on God for everything as they went. We don't know how long they went. Seems like they went to a few different areas for each group. We'll see in verse 30 later that they come back reporting everything that happened. Going two by two, though, is wise on so many levels, right? To, to, for encouragement, to keep one another focused on the mission, away from distractions, to help establish their testimony, to, to have a second witness in any event. Uh, it can often be tempting to just go and do something by yourself, Hey, grab someone else. Go two by two when you need to do something. Now, working through sort of the instructions, usually a traveler would have two cloaks or tunics, one to wear, and then one if they were to sleep outside or on the road to to use as a blanket to pull over them. And so what Jesus is saying is that they don't need that second tunic because they will be sleeping inside. They'll be accepted into houses wherever they go. And he emphasizes that they're to accept uh, whatever home hospitality puts them up and to stay there. And I think the implied message is don't wait around for another better offer. Stay where they will accept you, where they receive you. Don't wait for a wealthier home, better digs. And the final emphasis is that not everyone is going to accept you. And so what does it mean to shake the dust from your feet as a testimony against them? It's Jesus' way of saying that you don't need to act in anger or spitefulness as you leave town. This town that hasn't listened to you or welcomed you. Shake the dust off and walk away. You're on to the next town. You are leaving that town to God's judgment. He'll deal with them. You don't have to. If you remember, Luke 9 records an incident where uh, Jesus was heading to Jerusalem and and he had to go. He was walking through a Samaritan village and they didn't want him to. They didn't receive him. And James and John, the sons of thunder, are very indignant on his behalf. Hey, do you want us to call down fire and consume them? As if they could do that. Uh, Jesus rebukes him. And they just went on to another village. I think the point is that Jesus does not inflict more punishment on people who reject him. We kind of see that in both of these stories, right? He's rejected. 
but he doesn't lash out. He doesn't retaliate. He walks away and he, t- he says, tells his followers, walk away. We're going to leave them in their state of rejecting me. It reminds me of Romans chapter 1. It's how God deals with humanity, how God reacts to those who reject him. If you remember Romans 1, verse 28 says, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, general sinners turned away, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And if you read through the whole chapter, it just says over and over, God gave them up. God gave them up. Which essentially means he left them alone. He let them choose their own destructive course. God has revealed himself to them. He's shown his work in the world. Clearly, everyone knows that God exists deep down. But they choose to repress that knowledge and go their own way. They embrace idols and immorality. So God allows them to pursue what they want. When people reject God, it's just one more sin on top of all the other sins that they've chosen that condemns them. I think this is a reminder that we should not be surprised or indignant that God doesn't intervene. He's giving people what they want, what they choose. We should be surprised and amazed when he does intervene. The message of the gospel is that all people have chosen sin and alienation from God. We're all sinners who have earned his wrath, his condemnation, eternal punishment. I deserve to die and go to hell. But for his own purposes, for his own glory, God reaches down and saves those that he has decided to save in his sovereign wisdom. He can't overlook their sin. He can't just let it pass by. The sin has to be punished. And so his own son, Jesus, who was and is fully God and fully man, took the punishment for those sins on the cross. Thank God that he takes that initiative and does not leave us in our sins, but does the work to save us. The last two verses in this passage sum up how the mission of the disciples went. They followed Jesus' instructions, were able to see the mission accomplished. Let me read verses 12 and 13 again, mission accomplished. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Now, the word apostle means one sent forth. So Jesus takes his disciples. Disciple means learner, student. Gives them a mission and sends them forth. And they become apostles, which, of course, is what he will do in a much greater way after his ascension into heaven. Right? When he's not around anymore, the early church has to go. Spread the news. Start churches. They're on their own. Jesus has left the Holy Spirit, of course, to guide them 
in everything. Verse 12 and 13 say that this mission, this first sending out was very successful. Many demons were cast out. Many people were healed. We don't know exactly where they went or how long. And it doesn't necessarily say that people repented, right? That was the first thing they were do, to do. Went out, proclaimed that people should repent. But we have to assume that they did. Because I think like Jesus, if people's hearts had still been hard, they would have not done those amazing works. Their, their work would have been limited in those areas. But they have great success. And so we see that Jesus has brilliantly multiplied his reach by authorizing, by giving authority to his disciples who have been watching him do it and emulate it. This text is probably used at missions conferences, verse 7 through 13, uh, to prepare missionaries for going out to the field, right? It's a good one. It's probably used in seminary to talk about when pastors and ministry leaders are sent forth to do God's work. But please don't limit this application and how we understand this passage to just applying it to those who do ministry full-time and as a career. Because every disciple of Jesus, everyone who has learned the truths of the faith and committed their lives to him, are sent out as his hands and feet into the world in some way. Listen, I know you have a full-time job or you're a full-time student. You have tons of responsibilities with your family, your home, with the groups that you volunteer with, coaching, whatever you spend your time on. But you are still an ambassador of Jesus Christ wherever you go. You bear the name Christian, little Christ, and represent Jesus in the flesh to those who don't know him. And he expects this to work like a lot of things in life. Ephesians 4 says that the preachers, leaders, elders, church leaders, I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little, we equip the saints for the work of the ministry. We do what we do in a lot of areas of life. We model we instruct, and then we release. I mean, think about when a parent is teaching a child to drive, right? The child has watched the parent drive for good or not so good for 15 years, right? They've been the model, and hopefully the parent has modeled good, responsible driving. And then the child takes driver's ed and gets some knowledge, Starts to get some confidence, gets a permit, and then the child takes the wheel. But the parent's still there, right? Sitting there, gripping the seat, trying to pretend they're not freaking out, knowing that they don't have a break themselves. Some parents can't even handle that. I'm not naming any names. Kath. <laughs> But the goal is that eventually the child is going to be confident enough to get their license and drive. Mom and dad aren't even there, and they don't even worry when they're gone, right? <laughs> That's a model of how Jesus trained his 
disciples in ministry. And, and we see this all over. I'm sure you do this at work. You train somebody, you walk them through it, and then you release them to go do it. All of our child's children's lives are going to be like that. Let me equip you. Let me teach you in this area because someday you're going to be off on your own and I'm not going to be there. And so it's still the idea how Christian discipleship and Christian sending works. Now, let's get two things straight. Uh, Number one, the apostles were unique. They had a foundational role in the beginning of the church, and no one's replaced them. Uh, They got to write the scriptures. Um, We're not trying to become apostles. We're not trying to claim that spiritual authority that that the original 12 and Paul had. Um, That was a one-time designation. Uh, The second thing is please don't expect to be given the gift of healing or casting out demons. I'm not discounting the fact that God still heals people or that there's still demonic activity in the world that we need to pray against, um, spiritual warfare. I'm not discounting any of that. But I think in the same way that we are not to follow the instructions to carry a staff but no bread or money literally, we're not, kind of, we're not following the exact same instructions here. We have our mission as well. And there's actually several places we could go to the scriptures, but the great commission reminds us that go into all the world or as you're going into the world, make disciples, make followers of Jesus of all people groups bringing them into the church through baptism, teaching them everything Jesus said, using, then they can use their gifts in ministry and things just multiply and multiply. This is never an individual call, right? This is the joint call of the whole church. We may have great success. We may see people repent and come to faith in Christ. Or we may have people indignant and offended. We might have people not welcome us. We may be able to do a lot of spiritual work and spreading the word, or we may be very limited. Either way, we're called to be faithful and go. Christ calls each of us to be one of his sent forth ones, to be his hands and feet in the world, spreading both his healing love and the message of salvation through his shed blood. I know you're hearing this and thinking, I already carry some guilt about this. I don't do this well enough. It's one more big thing. But wow, when you see one person repent, one person be spiritually healed, you rejoice that Jesus included you in his mission. Right? God could accomplish anything he wanted on his own. Any number of people could come to faith in Christ. God could do anything in the world he wanted. But he chooses to do it through us. He chooses to do it through his body, his hands and feet. We're going to close our service this morning singing the hymn, Facing a Task Unfinished. Uh, You know the melody as the church's one foundation, and we've been singing this for a couple years It was written by a man named Frank Houghton, who was a missionary to China, the head of China Inland Mission in the 1930s and 40s, which was 
pretty much right after some really great persecution in China. And so the words, as you sing, I want you to really tune into the words. Facing a task unfinished that drives us to our knees. We should be praying every time we go out. A need that undiminished, still there, rebukes our slothful ease. Ouch. We who rejoice to know thee, renew before thy throne the solemn pledge that we owe thee to go and make thee known. Unnumbered souls are dying and pass into the night. We bear the torch that flaming fell from the hands of those who gave their lives, proclaiming that Jesus died and rose. Ours is the same commission. From cowardice defend us, Lord, from lethargy awake. Forth on thine errands send us to labor for thy sake. Lord God, thank you that you include us in your mission. Thank you that you have healed the divide, bridged the gap that our sin has created. That on our own, we are enemies of you. We want nothing to do with you, but you draw us in by your sweet, glorious grace in Jesus. And we become part of the universal church. And we learn and we grow as disciples and then you send us out. God, may we be excited to go. As we saw in these passages, sometimes we're received and sometimes wonderful spiritual things happen and other times they don't. And people can't get past who we are. Sometimes they can't get past the message of what we bring, but you call us to go anyways. You call us to be your faithful witnesses in the world. Lord, we know that the Holy Spirit goes with us wherever we go to strengthen us. Help us to remember we have a helper and that you accomplish spiritual things. It's not all on us. We are just to be faithful. So we ask for that spiritual confidence to go out, to be your ambassadors, your representatives, your hands and feet in the world. In Jesus' name.